Welcome, friends! I'm your host, Adrian, and yes, you found us, Tea with Puppets, a podcast about Canadian stamp collecting. Yeah! This is episode number eight, and today we'll be talking about Canada's 1898 map stamp, or as some call it, the world's first Christmas stamp. We'll be diving deep on this stamp in just a moment. friends. Today we'll be chatting about the map stamp of 1898, or as some know it, the Christmas map stamp. For those with a catalog, it's Scott number 85 and 86. Originally, I planned this podcast to be a fun, lighthearted holiday episode about Canada's first Christmas stamp. I mean, why else would there be a 1998 commemorative for 100 years of a stamp? Even Canada Post's marketing at the time says it was the world's first Christmas issue. Now, I naively always took this as fact, but as I began to dive into the history, I found a much richer story. What normally is a short period of research became months of obsessive study. And today I'll be sharing what I learned, so I need to apologize for those that may already know the story. But I also have to ask forgiveness for those that don't, because they may never be able to look at this stamp the same way again. So let's begin, friends, by setting the stage of postal history and how we get to the 1898 map stamp. The first step in the story begins with the reforms of the postal system and postal rates in Great Britain. A major force in this cause came from Sir Rowland Hill, an English teacher, inventor, and social reformer. He started to take serious interest in postal reforms in 1835, and in early 1837 he published an influential pamphlet, which was the way those days to spread ideas, and it was entitled Post Office Reforms, Its Importance, and Practicability. In 1838, Hill made a proposal to Parliament in which he suggested that the postage on all letters received in a post town and delivered in the same or any other post town in the British Isles shall be at the uniform rate of one penny per half ounce. With his influence, and gathering interests from merchants, traders, and bankers who also viewed this system as corrupt, they start to really push for change. Eventually, Hill's 1838 proposals paved the way for the 1840 Act, which introduced the Uniform Penny Post. The 1840 Act also put in practice the idea of charging only one pence for prepaid letters and two pence if the fee was to be collected from the recipient of the letter. These fixed rates encouraged prepaid letters and accordingly, on May 6, 1840, the penny black became the world's first adhesive postage stamp used in a public postal system. The stamp was originally for use only within the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. In effect, initially, it was a local stamp, but the concept of stamps evolved and from 1841, that penny black would actually become the penny red, and the color was changed from black due to the difficulty of seeing the cancellation mark on the penny black. And so the penny red would be in use for decades, and there were about 21 billion produced. So now we head to the Americas. In the Americas, Alahu Burritt, an American born in New Britain, Connecticut, and trained originally as a blacksmith, became involved in politics and was active in many causes of the time, including opposing slavery, working for temperance, and trying to achieve world peace. Starting in the late 1830s, he had a hand in creating the prototype of the United Nations and was an organizer of the first International Congress of Friends of Peace. He is a gentleman worthy of more study, and I feel bad not going deeper, but I want to really stay on topic. So, one of Burritt's causes was also postal reform. 
After Britain introduced the Uniform Penny Post, he advocated that the British should also adopt an international ocean penny post and reduce the cost of postage from one shilling, 12 pence, to three pence. He argued that this would increase international correspondence, trade, and universal brotherhood. Silbert would continue to write and promote this idea for years, and in his later life, he found a passionate partner in England who would take up his cause. So now we go back to England and we find Sir John Henneker Heaton, the first baronet, who was a United Kingdom member of Parliament and from 1885 onward sat as a Conservative member from Canterbury. He held the seat for 25 years and during his time in Parliament, he became well known in the House of Commons for special interest he showed in postal questions. In 1886, he moved a resolution inviting the British government to negotiate with other governments with a view to establishment of a universal penny post. This attempt was defeated. However, he persisted, and he was considered to have been instrumental in a deal of 1890 that saw a reduction in rates between Great Britain and Australia. This began much talk in the mid to late 1890s about doing something about the postal rates within the empire. Now we come to Canada, or across the pond as they say. Sir Wilfrid Laurier, Prime Minister of the Dominion of Canada, appointed Sir William Mullock as Postmaster General in 1896. Mullock inherited an inefficient bureaucracy that was losing almost a million dollars a year. He believed that the improved service and lower prices would increase revenue and better connect Canada and the British Empire. With that in mind, he took up the campaign for lower rates throughout the empire. In 1897, the winds of change seemed to be in the air about lower rates, and later in that year, there was much correspondence on the issue, including the British Postmaster General sending inquiries to Mullock on the Dominion's opinion on reducing their overseas rate. Now, there's some confusion in the record about this, but somehow Mullock seems to have interpreted a request for opinions as a permission to make changes, and he initiated action to announce that at the end of 1897, Canada would unilaterally lower the lettered rate to Britain from 5 to 3 cents. Now, the British were absolutely shocked, and the announcement was made before the British Post Office was ready to act. Mullock was told by the British that he had no authority to take such a unilateral action, and he was forced to retract his pronouncement. However, due to his action, or blunder, depending on how you want to see it, a conference of all British Empire postal authorities was called for the summer of 1898. At this July meeting, the idea of the uniform empire rate was brought up, but it was rejected by some of the colonial governments. All was not lost, however, as a compromise resolution was agreed upon, which left it open that individual governments could adopt a uniform rate if they so choose to do so. Mere weeks after the meeting, on July 27th, the date proposed for the introduction of the imperial penny postage was announced as November 9, 1898, the birthday of the Prince of Wales, who would later be known as Edward VII. Now we have to stop right here, because what happened next is where it's hard to know if it was just a good story, rumor, or truth. The story goes, and depending on which version you read, it was either Sir William Murlock or the Duke of Norfolk, British Postmaster General, who presented the imperial post decision to Queen Victoria. And the Queen asked when the imperial postage stamp would become effective, and whomever you choose to believe the official was that was there replied, on the prince's birthday. Now all the stories seem to indicate she was not happy to hear this, and, queen, and the Queen responded, and what prince would that be? The Prince of Wales was not Victoria's favorite, apparently, and she did have other sons. Thinking fast, this official replied, Why, the Prince of Peace, Your Majesty, of course. Now, it's really hard to know what the, what the facts are here, but what we do know for a fact is the following. There was a letter dated August 11th sent from the Duke of Norfolk 
to Mulock, emphatically stating that one penny rebate to be restricted to the half ounce scale and to fix the Christmas day as a date which the new agreed postal rate would come into effect. Certainly, those that want to believe that Canada produced the first Christmas stamp often use this as proof to their argument, but I really feel as tenuous as best. To me, it's clear the date of December 25th was selected as the day the rate would change more than any celebration of a holiday. What we do know for certain is Mulock, by the end of August 1898, had a solid confirmation that the adoption of the penny postage between Canada and the United Kingdom was set, as was the adoption of this rate between Canada and any other colonies willing to adopt a similar rate on that day. This would end up being a uniform rate between Great Britain, Canada, Newfoundland, Ireland, British India, British East Africa, the Niger Coast Protectorate, Jamaica, and the Bahamas. So with all the confirmation set, a design was started, and we'll talk about that more in a moment, and the printing of the new stamps began on December 1st. Both the Governor General and the Postmaster General, William Murlock, were there while the first sheets were run off the presses. Although it was originally intended to issue the stamp on Christmas Day, it was actually placed on sale quite early in the month, as explained in the following extract from the weekly, according to author Bertram Poole. Ottawa, December 5th. It having been stated in some newspapers that the new two-cent imperial stamp would not become available until Christmas Day, inquiry made at the post office department today to ascertain the truth of this statement elicits the fact that although it was originally the intention of the department that the new stamp should not come into use until December 25th, the demand from the public for it has been so pressing that the department has decided to issue it at once and permit its immediate use to the extent of its face value for all postage purposes. In other words, as soon as it reaches the public, it may, if preferred by the purchaser, be used instead of the ordinary two-cent stamp. The two-cent interimperial rate, however, does not come into effect until Christmas Day. So as you can see, the stamp was issued, and it was out there, and people could use it. And then on Christmas Day, 1898, the imperial penny post came into effect without issue. And by 1905, a uniform rate was in place for the whole British Empire, including Australia and New Zealand, who had been two of the staunchest holdouts on this idea. Now, before we move on to the actual stamp design, just let's take a moment longer and reflect on how important a move an imperial post rate was. I was born in the 70s as the world started to become more digital, but no matter who is listening, I am certain for most of you, by your young teen years, the world already had some strong global connections. You need to imagine back to a time of no airmail, no faxes, no telexes, no email, no radio, no TV, and of course, no internet. The imperial postage idea was huge. It reduced the postage among Great Britain, colonies, and territories with a reduction of rates by 60%. This change was also the impetus for changes to Canada's domestic rates and the letters to the U.S. As of January 1899, both rates were lowered from $0.03 cents to $0.02. Cents. It was an important change that cannot be overstated. Now, as promised, with the history covered, let's take a closer look at the map stamp of 1898. As you note from the facts, the stamp is not a Christmas stamp. The marking of Xmas, or Christmas 1898, is really an indication of when the rate came into effect and not so much a stamp celebrating the holiday. We can see this in the notes about the design process. William Willock, the Postmaster General and Chief Canadian proponent of the adoption of the Imperial Penny Postage Rate, wanted to make a statement. It also seems clear Britain would not be issuing anything special either. As Mr. Hanbury in the British House of Commons responding to a question about special design to commemorate the change noted, 
It is not the contemplation to provide a special stamp for imperial penny postage, as there is an existing stamp for the penny rate. Now, I was able to do some digging in the National Archives, and it truly looks like Sir William Moloch really wanted something special for the stamp, but it's clear that it wasn't something any related to Christmas. But it was also clear that he wanted to use the map on the stamps, because it was in almost all the early designs that I saw. The actual drawing for what became the final design was made in the presence of Mr. Murlock by Mr. Warren L. Green, president of the American Bank Note Company Limited of Ottawa. In October 1898, Mr. Green called at Mr. Murlock's office. A memorandum in the files of the Canadian Bank Note Company about this meeting reads as follows. This is a rough idea for the new stamp. Mr. Murlock had a number of designs for this and naturally a great many conflicting ideas. The only way I could get anything definite was to sit right down with a pencil and brush and work right alongside of him until we got something that approached his idea. Interesting, and I'm not sure if it's just me projecting, but when I look at the design of the stamp in the Canadian National Archives, it almost looks like Xmas 1898 or Christmas 1898 was added as an afterthought. Now looking at the final stamp, you'll notice it contains a map of the world using Mercator's projection showing various parts of the British Empire in red. The stamp bears the inscription Christmas 1898 across the base of the design and the text reads, We hold a vaster empire than has been. This text comes from the occasion of Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee when Sir William Morris, a Welsh poet, wrote a song of empire published as the Jubilee Ode in June 1897. The line occurs in the following stanza. We hold a vaster empire that has been. Nigh half the race of man is subject to our queen. Nigh half the wide, wide earth is ours in fee. And where her rule comes, all are free. And therefore, tis, O queen, that we, knit fast in bonds of temperate liberty, rejoice today and make our solemn jubilee. This quote on the stamp did not come without embarrassment to some. In Parliament, Sir Charles Tupper noted, When did Canada hold a vaster empire than has been? We are all proud to know that Canada is the brightest gem in the imperial diadem. We are glad to know that there is no section of this great empire that commands more consideration than Canada does today. But why should we make ourselves ridiculous? He then goes on to note how some of the press have taken to mock the stamp, including in England, and he concludes his comments with asking a personal favor. I ask, as a matter due to the feelings of the people of Canada, that this ridiculous post office stamp be done away with. Now, obviously, the request was ignored, and the design was defended by many in the Parliament, and as you know, it was not pulled. And it's a good thing, too as it's unlike any other Canadian stamp. There are so many variations of this stamp. There have been whole books written about it, including an influential one by Whitney Bradley entitled The Canadian Map Stamp of 1898, A Plating Study. So why are there so many variants? One could blame a new process never before used for postage stamps created in Canada. In his work published only a couple of years after the stamp was released, Bertram Poole reports, the stamps were printed in the usual sheet arrangement of 100 arranged in 10 horizontal rows of 10. The black portion was printed from line engraved plates, but the color portions were apparently printed by lithography. Consequently, three operations were necessary before the stamps were completed, and as may readily be understood, a three-color process in such a small compass made exact register a matter of difficulty. Thus, on many stamps, portions of the empire are found much out of place, sometimes wandering into the sea, sometimes encroaching in altogether too familiar manner on their neighbors. Bertram then also shares an extract from the Monthly Journal for January in 1899, which he claims is a fair sample of the criticism. 
It is not quite an occasion for captious criticism, and when we get a beautiful colored map of the world for a penny, perhaps we ought not to criticize, but we cannot think that the design is a very appropriate one for a postage stamp. The blobs of red are not always quite correctly placed. We have even heard cases in which the little irregularity of register has resulted in the annexation of the greater part of the United States, while England invaded France and the Cape of Good Hope went out to sea. Another controversy was the color chosen for the sea portion. At first, the ocean was lavender, but because this was not considered appropriate, it was soon afterward changed to sea green. In addition to these two tints, it also comes in a very pronounced blue. According to those who have studied it, including Clifton Howes and Whitney Bradley, the lavender sea was printed first, then the sea became green or blue-green, and finally the deep blue color was used during the third week of printing, roughly around December 20th of that year. Interestingly, in the modern Scott catalogs, there is only two distinct numbers. These fall into Scott 85 and 86, Scott 85 being for the Lavender Sea and Scott 86 for the Blue Sea. Within these two different variations, though, there are some variations that are listed in the catalog, but there are so many numerous variations that aren't noted, including extra island variations, so-called muddy waters, as well as retools and retouches made to the plates in later print runs that even led to more variations. Now, having spent so much time studying these stamps both online and at various auctions, it seems it should probably be one Scott number with subversions based on sea color. As for the other variations, there are way too many to number within a catalog, so I really don't blame them for this, though. The reality is this was a very large learning curve in making the first multicolor stamp in Canadian history, so of course there were going to be some bumps in the road. I must say though, even with all its flaws, there is something so intriguing about this stamp. I know for myself this journey through history has certainly added an unexpected quality to it for me. And don't worry if your interest has been intrigued too and you don't have a copy in your collection. Thankfully, there are many opportunities to find them at your local stamp dealer, at stamp shows, or even from eBay if you want to grab a copy. More than that, it's just fun to hunt down, especially because of all the variations that can be discovered. So now that we covered the design, I kind of wanted to circle back to an important question. Is this really the world's first Christmas stamp? I think it's really clear by now that this stamp was issued for a postal rate change that happened to come into effect on Christmas Day. You could argue it's the first stamp in the world to use Xmas or Christmas on it, but if you're like me and are curious and kind of dismiss the stamp, the question then becomes, what is the first true Christmas stamp in the world? And I thought this would be something easier to answer, but this comes with some controversy as well. I can tell you for certain it was not Canada. In 1937, Austria issued two stamps billed as Christmas greeting stamps, but neither had a Christmas theme. One showed a zodiac sign and the other depicted a rose. It wasn't until 1943 that Hungary issued the first Christmas theme stamps, which sold specifically as a holiday stamp. I'll let you decide between the two who made the real Christmas stamp. Now, what about the other countries? Are you thinking about that too? I knew it. You are curious like me. In the 1950s and 1960s, most other countries began to release Christmas stamps. The United States only issued their first Christmas stamps in 1962, and Great Britain didn't do it until 1966. Ah, so you ask, what about Canada? I am certain some of you know the answer, but for you awesome trivia fans, you've now got a new one to impress your friends. It wasn't until 1964 when Canada Post finally began issuing annual holiday stamps on a regular basis. These first stamps are the three and five cent family stamps issued in October 1964. The press release from Canada Post at the time even notes the following. 
These stamps will go on sale October 14, 1964, and will remain in use during the Christmas season. The stamps, which will be printed by the steel engraving intaglio process, will show a family group of a man, a woman, and two children in silhouette walking off towards a Christmas star in a typical Canadian winter scene. The design is intended to express the feeling of Christmas as a religious and family occasion and at the same time to portray the scene in a Canadian environment. They then go on to say, Although Canada produced a stamp bearing the word Christmas 1898 in 1898, the 1964 issues are the first Canadian postage stamps intended especially for use on Christmas mails. So there you have it, the words right from Canada Post and the real story of the 1898 Christmas stamp. Now don't get too sad, there's still some other things that are important, such as the claim of being the first multicolor stamp in Canadian history, and it also celebrates an important place in postal history. Doesn't that alone make the stamp more amazing? I know once I found out the whole story, it added a whole new dimension for me, and I hope it does for you as well. On a final thought, I want to take the time to thank all the great philatists who did the research I read in putting this together. Their insights were simply invaluable. I want to specifically thank Bill Pickenen, Whit Bradley, Bertram Poole, Ron Windmill, Clifton Howes, Frederick Tomlinson, Kenneth Kershaw, and many other great philatists who have been writing about this topic for many years. Without their contributions, this episode would not have been possible. I've added links to all their great content on our website. So that's it for the eighth episode. Thank you so much for spending time with me and sharing this show with your friends. If you're looking for more info about this show, make sure to check us out at teawithpuppets.com. To see the stamps we mentioned in this episode and more, click on the show notes image at the top right corner of our website or the link we've added to the description of this podcast episode. If you have any podcast feedback, ideas for guests, cool stories, or more, we'd love to hear it too. You can email us over at feedback at teawithpuppets.com. And finally, one more thing, we are currently surveying our listeners to learn more about our audience so we can create even more compelling shows. Please take a few minutes and visit our website and click on the listener survey link found on the homepage to help us out. Once again, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon for our next episode. Have a super rest of the day and happy collecting.